listening to episode 74 of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Josh Havens. And I'm Chris Lambert. And we're on a journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us and hope that as you set aside this time for God, that he would help you grow today in the everyday moments of life. Today we're talking with Joe Lamberth, and if that name sounds familiar to you, it is because he is our very own Chris Lamberth's brother. Yeah, so really excited about uh, this conversation with my brother today. Uh, He has been a longtime listener of the podcast, uh, and he is one of the main people that I get to walk with, so spend our, you know, think about step three, walk with someone. Obviously, I walk a lot with Josh. But my brother is right there alongside. And one of the things I really like about my brother is that he is a thinker. Maybe that runs in the family (laughs) and that we we like to think about things maybe sometimes too abstractly or maybe too deeply. And people sometimes people have a problem with with that. We want to ask those questions that make a lot of people uncomfortable at times. And so uh, my brother has been asking a lot of questions about the authority of Scripture. Now, we went on very different paths in life and in, in our ministry careers, if you will. And so I went on to Bible college and went to seminary, and Joe went like right into different ministry activities. And so he's been a missionary. He's uh, been around the world, lived in a bunch of different countries, and done about all the different kind of ministry activities that you can really think of. Uh, he, he's done it. And so, but when it comes to a lot of you know, maybe what we would refer to as book learning, he hasn't done as much of that. And so he's done some, and we've we've talked a lot about these things, but he, he's been asking a lot of really good questions. And so I said, Joe, let's just, let's just do a podcast on this, man, because people need to hear that these questions exist. People have these questions, even experienced ministers have these questions. And yet even Josh and I, we have some answers, but they're not the answers in, in that and what I mean by that is we have at least thought about them enough so that we have an answer that allows us to go to sleep at night. That's what that's what I mean by that. It doesn't mean that we're saying that this is the gospel or that this is the 100% for all time correct answer. This is just simply the way that we approach it. And so we did a podcast a few weeks back now, end of last year, on the authority of Scripture, and it was a little rambly, it was a little focused, and that was largely for my brother's benefit, and you know he was kind of giving us some of those things. So we wanted to do a follow-up. Some of what you're about to hear is a bit, there, there's going to be a lot of similarities in this stuff that we talk about, but he, then my brother has a chance to ask us a few more targeted questions, and we're able to go a little deeper, I think, in, in, into some of these some of these issues. And so um, but I, I do, I want to give this disclaimer. Don't think that anything that we say here is, again, the 100% absolute truth. This is why, this is one of my favorite answers that I gave my brother, and having talked to him since the podcast, this is why studying scripture has to be an important spiritual discipline in your life. So like when you come upon these difficult moments in scripture, yeah, sure, you should have a framework that you approach and view the entirety of Scripture through a lens that you that you view it all through, as in it is the authoritative and fallible Word of God. But what does that mean? How does it play itself out in this passage? That's where you're going to have to look at that passage in more in depth. You might go to the language studies. You're going to have to pull out some commentaries, and you're going to have to talk with people because this is what it means to work out our salvation and try to figure out what it means to live our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, given that our 21st century mind doesn't quite line up with what they would have 
understood this to be in the first century or uh, even before Christ in Old Testament times. And so that's what this episode is. We hope you enjoy it. It's a little longer than normal, but we sure had fun making it. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really excited to be talking with you. Um, these are many questions that we're getting ready to talk about in this topic that we've talked about, you know, uh, off off podcast together. We've wrestled with them, um, but I think it's time that we go ahead and kind of bite the bullet and share a little bit of our journeys with uh, the, the wider Daily Growth Discipleship audience, um, and, and really because it demonstrates how prolific these questions are in that people who even serve in pastoral positions, people like Josh and I who have been to seminary, we still wrestle and struggle with these questions and, and you know, answering that we may be able to come up with answers, but there's no such thing as an easy answer. I think when it, and, and many times when we approach this topic of, of the authority of scripture, it's something we should always revisit throughout our Christian journey. And as we have doubts, questions, and concerns, we shouldn't hide those. We need to find a safe place where we can voice those so that they can be worked through. Because we believe, you know, if if truth and in, 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 if, if God is really who he says he is, then the truth can never hurt us. We need to get it out there and talk about it. And so that's what we wanted to do today is explore a little bit of what possible truth may exist when we're talking about the authority of scripture and all this other stuff. I like stuff. that you use the word possible. Well, because we're going to get to, yeah, so this might feel a little disjointed and we might be jumping all over the place, but uh, I, I should preface this by saying, and, and right off the bat, I know we're going to probably get some flack from people and they're going to think that we're heretics because when you talk about this subject, you know, if you talk to 20 people, you probably have 20 different answers in the way that you approach you approach this thing. And so we will present orthodoxy. We will present this is the way the church believes and and these are like the safe positions. But I, I, I feel compelled to at least by start by saying um, when you approach a subject like this and really any subject, but this one especially, you have to approach it humbly. And so, and what I mean by that is you have to approach it with a loose understanding in your mind to say, I don't know everything right now. So many times when we approach a topic, you're like, well, this is what I believe. And so that's the truth. And it's like, yes, you believe that because you believe that. That sounds stupid, <laughs> but think about it. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't espouse that if you didn't think it was true. So to a degree, yes, that's what you think is truth. Realize though, you've been wrong before and you had to arrive at the current belief that you have right now from someplace else where you didn't believe that, which means there was at least some progression. That progression may not be over for you. It may be. You may have the exact right truth in your head. The problem is, is you don't necessarily know that at any one moment. And so we have to approach these kinds of topics with humility by saying, you know what, maybe I don't know everything and at least be willing to wrestle with the questions. Um, you may come to the exact same conclusion. In fact, I hope you do. But you may not. And if that's the case, then you have to be humble enough to say, okay, well, I was wrong before, and this is uh, the progression of my journey. Yeah, I think journey. the key is being willing to examine things, yeah. look at them, take a step back and say, okay, let, let, let's, let's take this apart. Let's dissect what I'm understanding, what I'm believing, what I'm seeing, and really try to, to figure out what's going on. And if it so happens that it was correct in the first place, Great. Mm -hmm. If not, we when we 
dissect our our beliefs, our understandings of things, then we can at least see what's going on. Yeah. And we firmly believe there is no problem whatsoever. It's not a it's not a a strike against your faith. It's not any kind of danger for you to take things apart and examine them like this. Yes. Um so we encourage that actually. Absolutely. So what is leading this conversation is um a book called Cross Vision by Greg Boyd. And so there is a really academic scholarly two-volume, 1,400-page set that he wrote. And then he wrote um, an everyman's version called Cross Vision that's about 200 uh, pages. And I read it. I think it's a fantastic book to read. But I did hesitate to suggest anybody should read this book because he brings up many questions like this that you have to be ready for. If you're thrown into some of this stuff too early, you know, it, it could cause you to question things too fast. And so um, if, if you're in that boat, just, I, again, I would say, listen, go back and listen to what we just said. It's okay. <laughs> Don't try to go too fast, though. So anyway, my brother, Joe, read this book, and now we want to talk about it a little bit and um, have this discussion. And I should m- note... We do want to have Greg Boyd on the podcast at some point and dive deep into these questions with him ourselves. But uh, until we can get that set up, we'll just talk about it. We'll just talk about it. Exactly. (laughs) So um, authority of scripture, Joe, where would you like to dive in today? Well, first, I do want to kind of piggyback on what you said about taking it slow, because I've actually not finished the book Cross Vision because I keep getting through chapters and it's like, OK, I've got to stop. I've got to I've got to chew on that. I've got to research and, you know, w- w- what truth or validity is there to some of the statements he's making. So uh, and sometimes I'll read a chapter and it it kind of blows my mind and my worldview. And so I'm like, OK. I've got to stop and ask some questions. I've got to figure this out because that's so radically different from anything I've ever been taught, how to look at scripture, and uh, just in general, it's a new idea that for me is kind of shocking. And so I'm just taking it chapter by chapter, trying to learn and grow and uh, do it at a pace in which, you know, I I feel comfortable and that the Holy Spirit and just uh, uh, the Bible can help illuminate these things to me. Um, That's very wise. But, you know, as far as uh, jumping into the book and the authority of Scripture goes, um, I would say like the biggest premise that uh, the starting point for me, and he, he starts the book out with it, is that in the belief that Jesus Christ is the, the full revelation of who God is. Um, you know, he's, we, Jesus Christ is a part of the Trinity. He is, you know, we've always hundred percent God, but he's also hundred percent man. He is God. With that in mind, the picture the New Testament paints of Jesus is very different than the God, the Israelites of the Old Testament served, uh, or the picture that they had of him. And, um, even to the point where when Jesus comes on the scene, the Pharisees even missed it, right? They, they, they didn't like what he said. They, they thought he was, he was a heretic. They, they ended up killing him for it. Um, and so in my mind, I think, okay, well, if they missed it, what else is different? What else am I not reading correctly? What else am I not understanding, uh, especially for the Old Testament? And, um, 
And so I have questions about that and I'm just trying to dive in and learn more. So thanks for, for helping me with this. Yeah. So that's a great place to start. And I get, uh, let me preface this by, you know, kind of recounting a little bit of a uh, Greg Boyd's story that he opens that book with just to illustrate. And, and, and it's essentially what happens and he uses his wife and he, the story's kind of drawn out, but you know, he uses his wife as an example because he knows her, he's been married to her for 30 some years now. And so he, if she did something that was out of character with how he knew her to be, what would he think if he saw her do something crazy, like, you know, basically assault a homeless person. And because she knows this woman, she knows, he knows she's loving and kind and would never do that and would rather help somebody rather than assault somebody. So something must be going on here that he doesn't know about or isn't seeing that's motivating this behavior. He's he's using this analogy to say the same thing about Jesus is that if Jesus is that fullest revelation of God and by knowing Jesus, we know God, we know that Jesus would rather die himself than raise his hand against an enemy. So why then does the God of the Old Testament genocide entire people groups, for instance? Why does he command Israel uh, to do a lot of these terrible things? Um, And essentially, Greg Boyd comes to the conclusion that um, that's because God didn't actually command those things in that way. Instead, it was a misinterpretation of what they received. Now, already we're on (laughs) uncomfortable ground, and this is why it's uncomfortable. And I do want to talk about the hermeneutics a little bit here. So again, hermeneutics is the way, the science behind how we interpret scripture. Um, Nothing about his interpretation method is unorthodox. He can use a perfectly orthodox, proven over 2,000 year history of the church method of interpreting scripture and arrive at those conclusions. The reason why it makes us uncomfortable is because we have, um, the Bible is our standard. It's the thing that we place all of our foundational knowledge on. We can. It's at least the one place where we can point to and say, "Say if the Bible says it, it must be true." That book contains truth. So when we start saying things like, "Oh, well, one part of it is right and another part of it is wrong," it calls into question the integrity of the book itself. That is not Greg Boyd's point, though, and it's not his intent is to call into account the integrity of Scripture. Um. I fully believe in the integrity of Scripture and in everything that it teaches. The issue, though, then is if you believe that, and I, I tend to believe it, although, I again, I feel that it's a dangerous position. I can't argue with the conclusion. I mean, I can't argue with his method, though, and his, and his conclusion. I feel that they, they touch on a very correct point in Scripture, and that is they miss the fullness, the full revelation of God who is in Jesus. Um, we, we have to deal with that. And I think there are many different ways of, of kind of coming about it. So the first one is, uh, is accommodation essentially. Um, so this is a, a word 
concept that early, early church fathers came up with to basically say that God accommodates his people, we little baby humans. And um, a great way, there's kind of two ways of looking at it, but um, I think the easiest way to start understanding it is uh, when you have children and your children say or do things that are kind of like, they're, they're childish. They don't really mean those things. Like if your child, you know, if you're you're getting onto your child and you say, go to your room or whatever, you're grounded. And they're like, I hate you. You don't really believe that your child hates you. You're accommodating them because you, you realize they're speaking from ignorance, right? They're, they're speaking from a limited emotional capacity to fully understand what's going on. And so, you know, when they're children, they, they're only capable of feeling one emotion at a time. If you don't believe me, go watch Inside Out. It's a great documentary. Um, <laughs> they don't know what hate truly means. That's yet. right. And so it's either, yeah, I love you. You're my favorite person in the world. Or I hate you and I never want to see you again type of a thing. But um, So you accommodate them as, as children. And we talk to them in an accommodating way. When my daughter asks me things like, uh, you know, uh, daddy, where do babies come from? Because, you know, she's had a few baby siblings now. You know, I don't necessarily give give her all the uh the details of that discussion i accommodate her and so i speak down to her a little bit um i'm not lying to her i'm not telling her anything that's untrue i'm just leaving out really important details and so she's going to draw her own conclusions though i don't really know what she thinks of that and as she grows older though her understanding of that subject material will develop until hopefully one day, uh, you know, she can have her own children and then she will come into the full revelation of of what that entire experience is like. In fact, from that perspective, being a woman, more of full revelation than even I understand. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, which is an aside. but <laughs> <laughs> That does bring up an important point, though. I mean, we have our own perspectives will always influence the way that we're seeing things. Mm-hmm. And so your perspective on what it means to have children is different from your wife's perspective. Yep. Like uh, just this morning, I was listening to um, Isaiah on the way into uh, to here. And it hit me because like if you're listening to an audio version of something, the uh, the person who's reading it can add their own tone and inflection and things like that. Literally just reading the text, the word for word text of the ESV, you can have a difference in interpretation just by reading the words out loud. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I pulled up the pulled up this passage. Uh, it's uh, Isaiah thirty nine. Actually, uh, Hezekiah has just shown a bunch of people from Babylon all of his stuff, and Isaiah is getting ready to come in and ask him, "Why are you doing that?" So, uh, Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, "What did these men say, and from where did they come to you?" Hezekiah said. They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Now, if you read it like that, it sounds like Hezekiah is kind of oblivious to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Now, if you reread it like this, Hezekiah, or Isaiah came, the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say and where did they come from? Hezekiah said, they've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, 
they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses I did not show them. Totally different interpretation now. Yep. And you're reading into Hezekiah's voice a perspective that you might have based on the way that you're reading the scriptures. And that can change again. So you read sort of like a neutral, I don't know. There was a bit of a fear and intrepidation version. You can also read it as a very arrogant. Yeah. There is nothing in my house that they have not seen. You know, look how great I am type, and you just, type of a thing. You do that at the drop of a hat in a split second in, in the way that you're reading scripture sometimes. And if that's the case, how much more so does that happen when we try to understand what's going on in all of scripture? Yep. And not to say that we just can't know, mm-hmm. but that's just to say we need to be aware of our perspectives. Yep. So, so let, let's let's make this today concrete because it sounds like we're going kind of nowhere. But we are again. I think everything in this conversation has to do with the foundation and how we approach it. Let's take because you all we all have our own perspective. If we don't understand that, I think this point is going to be missed. Again, this is where that humility comes in and everything. And this is where the hardest work, you know, Joe, you talked about, you know, needed to take a break. This this conversation of of trying to evaluate and realize what your own culture is, where your own biases are, um this is what will cause you some of the greatest uh crisis of conscience. And so Josh and I hit many of these points during our time studying. It's a good thing. It hurts, though. Sometimes there are sleepless nights, but it's a good thing. Slow down and keep going at it one day at a time. Um, For instance, though, like I'm saying, my wife and I have different perspectives on how to go grocery shopping. So if you asked me, hey, I'm going to make a roast tonight. Go and pick up these ingredients. We need chicken stock. We need onions. We need potato, you know, all that kind of stuff. Carrots. Don't forget the carrots. Carrot, of course, carrots. But the, the my point is, is actually it's really important what those items are with one. How many, how many onions do you use in a roast? You probably get away with one onion. So um, if, my, my, if my wife is going to go to the store and buy that shopping list, guess how many onions she's going to buy? Three. One. No, she's going to buy one onion because you said get one onion. If I go to the store, I'm going to buy three <laughs> because one is none and two is one. And so, and I don't ever want to have just one of anything. Stock up, man. It's, it's exactly right, especially for things that are non-perishable and then I may use again. So like any of like the canned stuff, like stock, chicken stock or whatever. Why would you ever buy one? Just buy two, and then if you want to make this recipe again later, you're good to go. And so, anyway, uh, but that's a perspective. So we're literally hearing the exact same thing. And in this one, it's it's slightly different because I'm not even hearing it from a different tone. But the way I'm going to receive it based on my cultural experiences of running out of things and not wanting to go back to the store or because my own personal preference of convenience is at stake, I'm going to go and I'm going to buy definitely more than one onion and my wife is going to go and buy one. Same instructions, same command. That's right. The text in front of you. Totally different result. Now let's take this and look at Joshua. Somebody who lived 3,000 years ago in a very different culture. He grew up as a slave in Egypt. 
He has been liberated. He has lived as a wandering peasant in the desert. I guess the timeline. He might not have grown up in Egypt, but anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. He probably did. He. Pro- I, th- I like to think he did, but you know, like young kid. Um. Anyway, so he's he's standing on this mountaintop overlooking the Jordan River, looking into Israel, and all of a sudden, this messenger shows up to him, and he says to him, "Who are you for? We're get you know we're on the verge of this big battle. We're going to go and conquer the land." And he says, you know, I'm neither for you nor against you, um, but it is your destiny to go and take that land. That's the one thing. That's the real key takeaway from this conversation. I'm neither for you nor against you, but you're going to go take this land. Being brought up in that time period, it's a very it was a it would have been a perfectly natural thing to think if that land belongs to somebody else and I'm going to be the one that owns it tomorrow the only way that those two things can happen is if i go over there and i kill everybody i have to go over there and kill everybody that's the only way that transfer of power happens in the ancient near east at the time again you think this way not you joe but all of us anybody listening (laughs) we all do in the exact same way today i use the grocery store analogy but it extends to almost anything right again Here's my biggest pet peeve right now is the political stuff in the Christian realm. Should Christians be political? Yes or no? Yes. Why? Because the gospel is political. So that means you should go out and be a Republican or a Democrat and run for president and change the entire system and force everybody to serve Christ because the gospel is political. And that's how we get change to happen in the government. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. No. That's not true at all. That's what many of us hear, though, when we hear that the gospel is political. The gospel is political, though, because it proclaims Jesus is Lord and no one else. That's a political message because you are literally shouting down and overthrowing the powers that be. Again, 2,000 years ago, it was Rome. It was Caesar. Today, it is President O'Biden. Oh, Biden. We're going to edit that out. <laughs> no, maybe I stand by it. We'll, oh, leave, Biden. It we'll leave it in. <laughs> Today, it's President Biden. Two months ago, it was President Trump. Hear me now. Two months ago, it was President Trump. Today, it's Biden. The message hasn't changed. We like to think that it does in, in the American Christian political landscape because, again, we are reading our personal perspectives into the thing. Yes, Jesus does call us to go and be political in that go and proclaim me as Lord. That doesn't mean that you need to go and run for president. It doesn't not mean that, though, either. This is where it gets complicated. But the point is, is that's not why the gospel is political, is so that you can go run for president. It strictly is around the area of Jesus being Lord and Caesar not being Lord. And so um, I, I very much the same way that we read our stu- stuff into it, that's what Greg Boyd's point is when he t- you know talks about these events. This one is one that he focuses on. Um, I- I- again, the angel appearing before Joshua and Joshua uh, misinterpreting you know what's being said. Um, 
yes, it's your destiny to go and take the take the land, but how does that process occur? I think Jericho does give us a good um a good lens for that because again, if you believe that you have to go and take it violently and destroy everybody, it's a pretty weird way to start by walking around a city a bunch of times and then having the you know walls miraculously fall. I was say, and then what happened to the walls? That's like, right. What causes that? Did God actually step in, cause the walls to fall down? Yeah. If so, is he basically putting his stamp of approval on this violence? Well, but is it is it? But no violence has happened at that point. The walls have just fallen down. We're good to go. It's gonna happen though. Yeah, but that and so, but that's the point. <laughs> then what happens next? I think that's the issue that we have to talk about. So it's one thing to say maybe the battle plan would have been you're gonna go to every city, you're gonna walk around them, or you know the way God works is he usually doesn't do the same thing twice. Sometimes you hit the rock, other times he wants you to talk to the rock. So it may have looked different. The point is though. We don't know that. We, we can't know that. So it's dangerous to speculate too much. I don't think walking around the cities and the walls falling down, though, is a violent act. I think that's a perfectly supernatural act. And I would be willing to bet the people of Jericho would have been like, we surrender. We're good to go now. Like, that's fine. You're God. They just get really deep. I mean, let's just play, the, play this out. What if there are people on the walls who fell and died? I mean, there may have been, but... You know, there's accidents that happen, so. The point is, is it wasn't the people, though, that were going and doing anything to those people. And I think that's the, I think that's the critical issue here when it comes to commanding uh, violence. And the thing that I, I think I want to keep in mind when, when looking at this is we can get really deep into details and in trying to, to play these games out. What if, and what if then this happened, or what if this happened? The biggest point, though, is we really just don't know. The text only says so much. Anything we do beyond that is putting into the text our own thoughts, understandings, ideas. And now some of those things we can draw logical conclusions from, but realize that we're drawing logical conclusions from something that's not, or from something that's in the text, and those conclusions that we draw are not in the text. Yes. And this is what we're talking about when we say we have to hold on to these ideas, these understandings, these beliefs that we have loosely. Because if the logical conclusion that we've drawn is somehow flawed, we've and we assign that to Scripture as this is what it means, then all of a sudden we have a faulty understanding of Scripture, which is part of what Greg Boyd's point is. Mm-hmm. We may have drawn conclusions but those conclusions are based on our own interpretation of what those things are. Mm-hmm. And his larger point is, when the people of Israel heard God's instructions, they did the same thing. Yep. And to kind of bring this full circle, we get uncomfortable with that because now their misunderstanding of God's command is recorded in our thing, our scripture, that we say is infallible, inerrant. Exactly. And what does that mean? Yeah. So let, let me just finish my point and then I'll, I'll jump to that. But like, so again, in this case, and now again, maybe walking around the walls and stuff like that was a wrong thing to do. The point is, though, is once those walls fell, everybody ran in believing that they had to destroy everything. In fact, we even get a story after that following up with God's judgment because everything wasn't 
destroyed. What do we do with that? I don't want to get down too much into the the weeds because, I mean, I think your point is is great. But my point is, is part of this story, I think, could have been perfectly harmless. The other part then starts to get really, really complicated and messy. How do you deal with that? And I think I think you've kind of you, you you've put it in a good perspective. Let me let me jump to my one of my I got two main conclusions that I want to pull out of the episode, and so um, that goes on. But I'll, I'll give you my first one. My first one is you have to get comfortable. This is the really hard thing to do. You have to get comfortable not only with holding your own ideas loosely, again approaching the subject with humility, but you have to get comfortable with the idea that two things could be correct at the same time and hold two competing views together in equal esteem. So I feel that I have done this with the view that we've just talked about as far as, you know, God commands Israel to go and take over this land. It's going to be yours. But that commanding violence is the wrong thing to do. Like he didn't command actual genocide here. This is what they interpreted as go and take the land at your inheritance. And yet God commanding genocide could be equally as true. And when I get to heaven and I ask him and he's like, Oh yeah, it was this one. I'll just be like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. (laughs) Sounds good to me because it ultimately doesn't change what happens after that. In my life, the way I follow Christ, um, it can change it if I'm holding just one view or another. That's not to say that our views don't affect the way they absolutely do. But the way I've worked through these issues, I can hold both of those views loosely. Again, even understanding and realizing that neither one of those things could be true as well. At least when I say true is in not that the events didn't happen. But the order and in, in the way those events transpired might not have been true. Because, again, like you said, these events were being written down by people witnessing them, and they're writing them down from their own perspective. Again, we can go back to the, the car wreck analogy. You have a car wreck on an intersection. You have four people standing on each corner. They are each going to record the events in different ways because they witness different aspects of it. Does it make one more true than the other? No, it's just different aspects of the same event. And so um, maybe that's the kind of a situation we have going on here in scripture and that we have God working throughout thousands of years of human history. And we have different people interpreting how they, how their interactions with God is, you know, uh, working itself out in their midst. Um, but we've inherited this story and yeah, we do, we call it authoritative and inerrant and all that sort of stuff. I don't want to, I want to put a pin in inerrancy and like just skip around it though, because I was supposed to say, we kind of have to touch on that next at some point then, because if we're talking about somebody writing something down from their own perspective and that perspective, maybe not being correct, what's it mean when we say that God inspired them to do it? Yeah. And that can get us to a really, really uncomfortable place because now all of a sudden the scripture is not the reliable thing that we thought it was. Yeah. At least and then that's what it seems like. It's because inerrancy then really just asks the question, then what is inspiration? 
and how does inspiration yeah, well, take Well, we place? look at inerrancy and we say, oh, well, again, from our Western perspective mm-hmm. that's really based on Greek thought, we look at inerrancy and say there are objective facts yeah. about history. And a record of those facts needs to record those objectively. Yeah. In other words, this is what happened. This is the absolute truth about what happened. Here's a good example and of that's that. that's never the case. In the 2000 election, was there voter fraud, yes or no? In the 2000 election? D- 2020, sorry. Oh. 2020. In the 2020 election. I something there was, but you know. It, 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 same thing. What will history say about that? Fast forward at 100 years, two, three, thousand years. What will be said about the 2000 election and the 2020 election? It will be largely decided at that point, and all other mysteries of history could be gone. So it will largely depend on the perspective of whoever's writing, whoever we inherit that history from at that point. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. They could be right. It's just there's a lot of different perspectives that you could have about that. Most people would say, yeah, there was some kind of voter fraud on both sides. Well, biblical example, straight out of Bible. Joshua goes through Canaan, just continue this story, and says basically, yep, we destroyed them all. Mm -hmm. All the peoples, we destroyed them. Here's the people we didn't. Yep. <laughs> and that and this is actually used as one of the examples of people saying, "Oh, look, the Bible contradicts itself. It it can't be trusted." So, ignore it. When in reality, you're not taking into account that the narrative style of the time mm-hmm. was to speak in absolutes like that. Yes. In other words, if you conquered an area, you say, "I destroyed all the people. They were all brought under my my rule." Mm-hmm. You look at um Records from the Egyptians, every single pharaoh conquered everybody in the world. Yep. And, and that's just the way that... And those armies were two were or recorded. three times larger than what that country recorded them as yep. being. Yep. And so Israel's doing the same thing. Yes. When they record their history of the conquest of Canaan, they use the same narrative style that a lot of other people did in the time. We conquered everybody. Here's the people that are left. And then hundreds of years later... Writers are reflecting on that event and saying, oh, well, Joshua said that he conquered everything. But you come along to Chronicles and you say, that's why we're in this mess is because they didn't actually conquer everybody. They didn't actually destroy everybody. And that's what allowed idolatry uh, to seep into our hearts. Now, again, was that true? Yes. But does that mean that they needed to have killed them all? Well, maybe. <laughs> But the point is, is even in that, you have two different competing views happening, even extended over, you know, separated by large time gaps here. So, again, I don't think that invalidates anything within Scripture, though. And that's the—talk about inerrancy. That's what most people focus on when they talk about the Bible being inerrant. I don't like to talk about the Bible being inerrant because I think it's an irrelevant word that we used— during the early 1900s to try and disprove the uh the what what is it the historical Jesus movement and all that sort of stuff people who are deconstructing scripture exactly 
And so, you know, inerrancy was a proof at that point. It, it, it was a word that we invented to make a single argument, and now we've sort of made the entire Bible rest on this idea of inerrancy, that every single word, every single jot and tittle in the this written down in Scripture has to be correct. Otherwise, the entire Bible isn't correct. Factually correct. Factually correct, yeah. And, and even, in, I think, the text and the mistakes that are in there, they all, there can be no mistake within Scripture. Because if you have a spelling error, well, then how do you know that it was Balaam's donkey that, you know, talked to him instead of just some guy named Ashalom or something like that, right? Like, <laughs> 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 need to come up with a better Hebrew word uh, that rhymes with tahor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now I'm try- I was trying to go Hebrew, but then English as well. Anyway. So, Joe, are you following any of this? Does it make any sense at all? Stop us from ranting yes. here. <laughs> no, yeah, it's it's good. I mean, I, I have just, I guess, onion questions. I want to peel back the layers. Let's go. Let's of peel these- back these uh, individual things. We've monologued um, long enough. Sure, sure, sure. So, uh, you know, I guess the, the overarching question would be for me, uh, if all of that is true, how then as a Christian follower of Jesus, do you read Old Testament scripture in light of not having all the answers? Very carefully. Well, and that's kind of Greg Boyd's point read it through the lens of Jesus. Mm, yep. Um, we, again, maybe because of our Western approach to it, we want to look at things very chronologically. And so we think, oh, this story has to be read from beginning to end. And in a sense, you kind of do. Uh, but at the same time, Jesus himself said all the law and the prophets point to him. And so... And he fulfilled all the law and the prophets. In other words, he is the point. He is the purpose of everything that happened from Genesis all the way to Malachi in whatever order those books were written. And so because of that, we have to look at those books, those writings, through the lens of the the God that we see in Jesus. And and this is this is Greg Boyd's biggest point, I think, in all of the stuff that he's doing. If we believe Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, stop, then everything that we see revealed about God has to come underneath that revelation of Jesus. In other words, anything else that God ever does has to be in line with who Jesus is and the way that Jesus behaved and acted. And if it's not, then it's not God. Yep. And and the way... To bring this back around to this accommodation idea, that is how God accommodates his people is by saying the story is not over yet. Jesus is coming. And so he doesn't immediately smite all of his people for getting things wrong if they are right. He doesn't do that. What he does is he accommodates them. He bears that sin of even their service until Jesus can come and say, you say that you should go and conquer the entire world by killing people, might that the kingdom of God will come by forcing Rome to bow down and worship 
uh, an all-powerful God sitting on the throne, throne at Rome. And Jesus says, the way the kingdom of God comes is by spreading out your arms and dying a painful death on the cross. In that act is the ultimate accommodation of human sin in that it takes it all upon all of our preconceived notions of how God acts uh, uh, and how God does things within our lives and within the world get flipped upside down on the cross because I don't care who or what you are. That is not a God anybody designs is a God that dies and somehow achieves victory. Not only does he not defeat his enemies, his enemies defeat him and that is victory. That makes no sense. That is, as Paul says, foolishness. That's the stumbling block to the Jews is that they think history is going one direction and yet it actually is going another. <laughs> it's foolish for we people, we Greek thinking people to think mm-hmm. that way. Um, and so, yeah, no matter what you do as a Christian, it all hinges on that moment, the moment of the cross. And this is, we've had him on the podcast several times, uh, Andre Snavely, Dr. Dr. Snavely. And this is his point that he has impressed upon me, especially over the few years. And, um, oh, I guess more than a few now. <laughs> Coming up on the decades. Yes, number. <laughs> exactly. So, um, I don't know. D- does that help answer your question, Joe? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, just, you know, in the, that, that's like the, the big question there. And then there's the, um, just the questions underneath it of, and you know, I, I don't necessarily want to go story by story and individual and have you guys, well, this is how you're supposed to, to understand that story. Um, but for just in a general sense, you can say that and I can say, yes, okay, so everything I'm going to read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, has to come under the revelation that Jesus is the full revelation of God. But then I feel like there's just so much that's contradictory in their viewpoint of who God was. In fact, um, you know, thinking about the Old Testament, there's a quote from a guy that I completely 100% disagree with. Um, You probably guys would too. uh, Richard Dawkins, right? You know, Mm -hmm. famed atheist, whatever. And he talks about the God of the Old Testament. Well, he just talks about God in general of Christians. But uh, the, the quote is, arguably, God is the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, uh, pestilential, ma- megalomaniac, uh, all these big words, sadomasochistic, capriciously mel- malevolent bully. Mm-hmm. And to a point, I can see that some of those themes, that's what the Israelites thought of God. You know, they wanted to go into the land and cleanse it and destroy it. And maybe not all of them, maybe they wrestled with it, but that's the picture I get when reading the Old Testament. Um, and, and by the way, it's the picture you get when you read the Old Testament with the preconceived ideas that Richard Dawkins is going into it with. Because contrary to false belief, although all of those things are true— you, there is a way if you read the Old Testament, even by itself, that you see God as a very merciful God, he, that he that he he wait, he gives patience to his people. He tries to do everything that he can not to have anybody killed. He gives the people in Canaan four hundred years while the people of Israel are in Egypt. That's right. So 
But if you're approaching it by saying, I should be able to do whatever I want, and all of these things are just perfectly fine, well then, yeah, that is the story that God, I mean, that's the story that my children say about me many times. It's like, that mean old daddy, all he does is spank us before we go to bed. Never mind that it's one o'clock in the morning and I keep, you know, putting holes in the wall. But if you think, if you're, if, if you're going into it with the preconceived notion that, you know, I should just be able to do whatever I want to do, then any, any sort of barrier to that, yeah, is, it feels like a terrible thing. But, you know, I, I care about my kids. I love my kids. So I don't want them to put holes in the wall and I want them to go to sleep because they got to go to school the next morning and on and on and on. And so, the, yeah, the way that you frame that, I think, is a very is also very helpful. Now, again, I'm not excusing all of those things that happen in the old the Old Testament that, that do sound bad. But again, I think it's by way of demonstration. However you're going to approach that is really going to affect how you read it. And so, yeah, good, good. So, to, to, to his point, I would say, uh, yeah, but you're not looking at Jesus. You're not looking at the God that I serve. You're You're looking at a different God than I'm looking at. Okay. And, so, and, and again, um, I, I have no other argument or recourse other than that statement. And Richard Dawkins would be forced to say, well, you're an ignorant fool who's blinded by your own, you know, desire to be right. And to which I would say, you're right. I am. There's, there's no doubt about that. That's what faith is. Um, and the only way then I have as a Christian to witness to somebody like him is to demonstrate that I believe it so much that it affects the way I live my life. So would I give my life for somebody like Richard Dawkins? Well, the answer is Jesus did. Okay. I think the word I want to use is beneficial. How is the Old Testament beneficial uh, for us to learn more about Jesus and say, you know, if, if all of the law, the prophets point to Jesus, how does a story like the flood or a story like the destruction of Sodom or um, uh, or we'll, we'll even leave it there because don't get into too too many examples. How does a story like that? How is that beneficial for pointing to Jesus? Yeah. So that's a good question. Um, there is no doubt mystery involved here, and mystery not as a term of ambiguity or I don't know. Genuine mystery in that it, in some ways, it's unknowable, um, and yet, so. It's not that I don't have opinions or ideas on on the like the two instances that you you've put forth. I would say though this begins to be though a motivating factor for reading the Old Testament and studying scripture. This is why we do it. Is because we want to learn more. The desire that you have in and of itself is quite possibly the best thing about uh, that question is just that you want to know more about God and what he's doing uh, in the lives of these people so that we can, you know, better understand what he's doing in the lives of uh, of, of our everyday interactions. Um, I guess we'll go ahead and give the obligatory Second Timothy 3.16 quote um, and that all scripture is profitable and good for knowledge and teaching and rebuking and all those good things. Um, so it absolutely is. Let's just go ahead and start by at least acknowledging that. Um, in fact, when you have the New Testament, you have Jesus, you have the early apostles 
going out, they're planting churches, they're preaching. Their scripture was the Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament. All they had was an Old Testament. But what you see these apostles doing is they're preaching the message of Jesus through the Old Testament. They're literally, that's what Paul does. He goes to the synagogues and he starts to, he's trying to reason with, that's a word that gets thrown around a lot. He reasons with the Jews because he's trying to show them how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Um, that doesn't mean to say though, that there's always nice and neat answers. One of my, uh, one of our friends and colleagues, Kevin, he's been on the podcast before, um, Kevin Folk, he loves to use the example of Psalm 1-1, right? Blessed is the man who does not standeth in the way of the sinner, nor sit in the seat of the wicked and the scorner and all that sort of stuff. Josh can quote things better than I can. <laughs> but that guy, we always read that text and we say, oh, okay, I should be that because that's the blessed guy I need to not stand with with sinners or be around them and do all of that kind of stuff so that I can be blessed. So it's a doing gospel. If I do that, I will get the blessing. Kevin likes to point out, no, 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 no. That's Jesus. That guy is the blessed guy. This is the guy that actually did all of these things. So this passage finds its fulfillment in Christ. So if you want to follow in the way, the wisdom that this psalm lays out, this instruction, your the way of, of doing that is not to just try to not be with sinners. It's to follow the guy who is talked about in that passage, which is Jesus. So you learn to live like Jesus. You, you learn to cultivate a life lived with him. Dare I say a lifestyle of following him and then, so then that's the way that passage starts to flesh itself out for your life. <clears throat> now, if we start talking about things like the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, they're a little bit more difficult to, uh, to see what's, what's going on there. Um, <clears throat> Josh, Josh did a paper and I'll, I'll have him talk about it just a little bit though, as a, as a general principle. Because I don't want to, I don't want to start digging into the weeds on those too terribly much. Um, but but they're like especially for the flood. I could, however much time we've talked right now, I could talk about the flood and what I think God is doing leading up to that event. Um, but Josh did a, a really great paper in seminary, his thesis on how God uses evil for salvific purposes, and so just because something bad happens doesn't always mean that it has a evil intent. Like, for example, when the evil spirit comes on King Saul, or uh, you look at, like, especially through Revelation, where all of these seals and bowls of wrath are being poured out. Um, and that's kind of where I start is with Revelation. Understanding that after each one of those rounds of tribulation, turmoil, and plagues, and stuff like that, you see the phrase, and still they did not repent. Mm -hmm. If you look back at the Old Testament, you see similar threads being pulled there as well. Pharaoh's an obvious one that Pharaoh, comes to mind. Pharaoh's an obvious one. Kings With King Saul, God sent, God, it literally says God sent the spirit to Saul to torment him. Um, 
And I think there's enough evidence there to say that when God does that, he's trying to bring Saul back to him. But Saul ignores it. Mm-hmm. Keeps pushing it off. Enter David. And the, just because you see these evil things happening does not mean that God's not at work in the situation trying to redeem humanity. And so it could be in a situation like the flood that this was a, walk with me through this, a localized natural disaster. Um, could have been global as well. Totally okay with that. Um, it could be that it was a localized natural disaster. You know what? It could be that it was a global natural disaster as well. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's beyond the realm of explanation. Doesn't have to be miraculous in the sense that just all of a sudden God made quadrillion gallons of water appear all at once, whatever mm-hmm. that looks like. Um, but it could be that God was trying to save humanity through Noah by saying, build the ark, tell them to get aboard the ark, preach to them, save them, because this is going to happen naturally in the history of the earth. Mm-hmm. Could have been something like that. Um, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah um, may have been a meteorite. Who knows? Sure. Could be that these things are natural disasters. Now, you do have to wrestle then with these statements of uh, their sin is so great that I'm going to destroy them. But at the same time, going back to Greg Boyd's point, if you're looking at this through the lens of somebody in the the ancient Near East, natural disasters and things like that were caused by the gods and were often judgment for doing the wrong things. Yep. And so that could have been the interpretation. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to look at these things, especially when you look at Abraham's uh, call where God says, I'm going to use you to be a blessing to the nations and think that what God meant then was, I'm going to use you to destroy all the peoples of the land that you're about to possess. Those, those seem contradictory if we're talking about God's singular purpose and, and heart. And so when it comes to bad things happening, yeah, God can can and often does use them redemptively. That's what Paul says almost explicitly in Romans 8. And the the God that we see revealed in the old, in the New Testament does those kind of things regularly. If we're going to then interpret the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, we have to do the same thing. We mm-hmm. have to say that God is also working redemptively in the evil that we see throughout the Old Testament. Yep. Whatever that might look like from our perspective, our limited perspective, he must be doing something redemptively. Mm-hmm. And it does, it, 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 again, I, it, it comes back to me to show how short-sighted and limited our perspective is uh, when it comes, you know, to, to this kind of stuff. And, and not in the sense, a lot of times we throw this around of like, the idea of, oh, we just don't really know what God is doing here. And, and I mean, that that's obviously true. But I'm, I'm talking about literally in the sense of what it means to rebel against God fundamentally in sin. In that you, you read the early chapters of, of Genesis and what Adam and Eve did. And you oh like, what's the big deal? They ate a piece of fruit. Give me a break, right? 
I'm not going to damn all of my children's uh, descendants to hell because my uh, my son went and ate an orange, which he loves to do. He loves to try to go and steal oranges out of our fruit basket. Uh, you know, Just bite it, straight into him. No, he's at, he starts peeling them and stuff like wow. that. I didn't even know he could peel a banana until he peeled one the other day. And, I, <laughs> and like, I was like, wow. Anyway, that's an aside. Um, so, so it seems like, oh, wow, you know, God is that horrible, racist, bigot of a person for, for doing such a thing. And a, again, I think it, it goes to show that something else is at work when it comes to the idea of sin, rebelling against God wanting to rule our own existence, wanting to be our own God, uh, there's something fundamentally bigger at stake here than just, uh, I ate an apple. Our, the way we view reality must be bent and broken in such a way that it's uh, that this doesn't make sense to us. And so, again, I like to, I like to begin with that. Again, if... You think about Jesus, and again, what is victory? Victory is the thing, the last thing that I would ever, I would never write a story where it ends in victory like that. It would never happen. If, if, but if that is the true revelation of God, how many more things have I gotten wrong about the way that I think about Him? Because there must be a lot, and there must still be a lot. If you missed the big thing, if I missed the big thing, exactly. So again, we we think about it, right? So we're like, oh yeah, yeah, okay. So maybe God wasn't violent, or you know, He was violent, and then Jesus showed up, and He was like the peace loving hippie version of God. And then, oh, but then when Jesus comes back in Revelation, He's got that sword coming out of His mouth, and then He's getting ready to slaughter everybody. So He really is the see. God really is the violent God. Again, it's perspective. There is that line that you can draw through it if you approach it with that perspective, or you can say, wait a second. The book of Revelation that's filled with a whole lot of symbolism and, you know, Jesus has got a sword coming out of his mouth. I don't know if anybody's ever tried to wield a sword, but uh, in your mouth's not the best place to kind of hang on to that. Perhaps maybe it's imagery for the word of God that he will be speaking that will pierce you like a sword. Maybe there's something like that going on. And we have any other examples in scripture, Josh, of sword imagery being used as, you know, a yeah, an imagery for something that's clearly not a sword. A few. So, again, sword of the spirit, scripture, the Bible. Um, it's not a sword, people. I know we like to have our sword drills and Hebrews four literally fight with them, but uh, these are metaphors. It's that these things are as powerful. Um, and again, that's using their language. We could we could use a Glock today, right? That the, <laughs> the the word of God is faster and you know has more killing potential than a glock <laughs> you're welcome gangsta jesus gangsta jesus I, so i got a i got a question to, yeah. to pile on top of that that imagery there um so when paul writes even about that sword himself you know the the the, the scripture is sharper than any uh, double-edged sword mm-hmm. In his mind, was he thinking that the words I'm writing right now are a part of that double-edged sword? You know, that's a good question. And we, we when we study the Bible and seminary and things like that, we postulate these kinds of questions. They're fun things to think about. I think one of my seminary professors, or our seminary professors, I don't know if Josh was in this class or not. He probably was. 
he said it this way. You know, there were probably moments when Paul wrote that he was like, this is probably going to be something important. Like the book of Romans comes to mind. Um, Hebrews could fall into that category if Paul was, in fact, the author of Hebrews. Corinthians, probably not. He was just like, man, these people need to get their act together. They are doing some really In stupid things. Y'all need Jesus. Y'all need Jesus, exactly. Um, I, I'd like to think, though, as arrogant as Paul was, <laughs> he would have never deigned to write something like Scripture, to, to think that what his writings were to the same level as Scripture. What I do think, though, that he thought, because I and I believe this about all of us today who who take up the pen or write and preach is that we are following in a rich tradition and heritage of recording what God has has done and is doing in our lives so that it might benefit someone else. So I do think Paul thought that at least about his. So again, whether or not it rose to the level of scripture, I don't know. I don't really really even know all the ins and outs of what Paul thought about Scripture. We don't have that information either, other than, you know, it's really important and profitable and useful for teaching and rebuking and stuff like that. It's not something, just because Jesus has come doesn't mean we need, we can get rid of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is instruction for our life. It is the recorded history of how God has worked throughout the lives of his people. Again, when we see Jesus, we get a better understanding of what God is doing in history. Now we can finally start building this puzzle because um, it's it's got our, our all of our corner pieces. That is Jesus. <laughs> um, before then, we don't know where the edges are. Now we do. So we can build it. That doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. Um, and you can, you can maybe create a complete picture of what this puzzle might look like, but again, it could also be wrong. That's the cool thing about this is it, and it may look good. It may, it may paint a great picture and yet there still could be pieces that you could rearrange and it make an even better picture or a picture of equal greatness. However you want to say that. I don't know if that analogy makes sense. Makes sense in my head. (laughs) Uh, so to so, so go a little bit deeper there, so going back to your your Timothy quote of all scriptures God breathed, profitable for teaching, um, if that reference is into the Old Testament, why is the New Testament in the shape it's in, and why aren't, you know, there are other books written at the time, other letters written by Paul and Peter and John and these many disciples, there's other gospels written, why aren't they included and then how did the New Testament take shape into what we consider today the canonized complete and finished? You can't add anything to it, Bible. To quote uh, Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof, I can sum it up in one word, tradition. <laughs> we look at um, the life of Jesus and the revelation that these firsthand witnesses had of who Jesus is the way that he behaved. And there's a certain amount of uh, accuracy that the rest of the New Testament writings have about that person as recorded by the people that wrote those things. So, for example, we, as a, as a church, 
big capital C throughout history, have agreed that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John accurately represent the person that we met in Jesus Christ. It's not that others don't have something accurate to say. They might. But these four, for some reason, tended to be the ones that proved to be accurate and reliable uh, in the way that they represented the person uh, of Jesus. The same way Paul's letters, the instructions that he gave, the, the theology that he created, proved to be reliable and an accurate reflection of the God revealed in Jesus Christ. The tradition that we have of teaching those things has proven that they're reliable in that way. And after the first 90 years after his revelation is 80, 90 or something yeah. like that. <clears throat> the first, after the first 90 years, the firsthand witnesses of Jesus have all died now, which means anything that can be written after that is a second-hand account at best, but probably more so, which means the ability to create reliable witnesses to the person of Jesus are now one step, were one step removed, and it's now a witness of a witness. It may be reliable, it may be accurate, but it's not nearly as reliable and accurate as the person who is writing this and saw the person Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we're after here is these things tell us about Jesus. He's the one that we're serving. And bigger picture, just side soapbox here, we don't serve scripture. We don't worship scripture. We serve and worship the Jesus, the God revealed to us in scripture. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, this is going to sound unorthodox, but it's not. We can live without Scripture. We can't live without Jesus. Now, for those of us living in 2021, Scripture and church history and witnesses from witnesses from witnesses is the only way that we know the person, Jesus, who lived then. Unless, like Paul, we get some special revelation where Jesus comes and talks to us face to face. Yep. Those instances are very, very rare. And we are, and this is where, this is where scriptures uh, value, a big part of its value comes into place for us, at least having a book that we've all agreed is the book. It's the source. It's the, it's the measure. It's the canon. That's what this word means, right? By which we're going to measure our orthodoxy, our right thinking. Is that if you come to me, Josh, and you're like, hey, Chris, guess who showed up to me the other day? (laughs) I got a special revelation of Jesus. And turns out he told me that it was a big hoax and that they were aliens or I don't know, just make up something from the, you know, the ancient aliens guy uh, channel. (laughs) And so, you know, whatever. Or, Or, you know, if you say, hey, guess what? It really is okay to... Fill in the blank with whatever sin. I don't want to throw Start out pet sins. Cult. Start a sex cult. That's a good one. Because um, <clears throat> that's what they thought in, uh, in many places in, in the church in Corinth is that they were doing a lot of these sorts of things. Well, I can say, well, hey, Josh, did you know that uh, a lot of these issues have already been addressed in Scripture and Scripture does not support your feeling that 
sex cults are a good thing, no matter if you think Jesus appeared to you and, and told you that. Now, you, Josh, will have to decide whether or not you believe that revelation enough if you actually have an authentic experience and you think that was actually Jesus. That's going to have to be something that you decide whether or not you're going to take that up. Or are you going to look at Scripture and say, well, that doesn't come in within line with anything else that has been revealed throughout all of Scripture's history. Can't find another thing in there that supports sex cults. And yet something appeared to me and told me that that was okay. We do see that, you know, at least Paul mentions that even if an angel appears to you and says something, tells you something different than what is written in this book, that you should not believe it because that is of the enemy. So you've at least got two pieces of evidence now on which you can make your decision. How are you going to make that decision? I'm personally, because I didn't have the experience, number one, I think you're probably just playing a prank on me or doing something <laughs> crazy. Or Why? Because you know my character to be something different? Yeah, because I know, exactly. <laughs> um, or that you might've had a mental breakdown because again, I know you well enough to know that that's not something that you would just come and say one day, but if it actually happened, ultimately you're going to have to be the one to decide which one of those two events it was. And so, um, scripture then becomes our guide for that, uh, for that process to take place. We look at it, we read it through the lens of Christ and we ask it these questions. Um, we we ha- as NT Wright points out though we have to be careful with the, the kind of questions we ask it though, it's because it it's not a 21st century book, so we can't quite ask it 21st century questions and expect a straight answer. So again, uh, the Bible doesn't say anything about owning guns. So should I own a gun or not? It doesn't work like that. So in that case, we have to like work out you know principles and things like that to sort of get us there. But um, <clears throat> So anyway, yeah, I feel like I'm getting, uh, yeah, I'm starting to get lost in the convoluted weeds here. Does that make sense, Joe? I forget what your question yeah, yeah. is now. <laughs> no, it, 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 you're answering all the questions. Uh, I guess I have one, one big final one, and this is something that I've struggled with for a while now. Um, uh, I mean, I was a pastor. I was a children's pastor for basically the last five years, and uh, one of the hardest things that I've been trying to, I guess, wrestle with personally is what to tell a kid or how to teach a kid the Bible. But specifically, um, you know, I give out a Bible, a new kid shows up, they don't have a Bible here, here, have a Bible, take this thing home and read it. And there's always been a part of me that has loathed or like really struggled with saying that because I don't want a kid to go home, read the Bible and start in judges and immediately be like, all right, this is, this is some messed up stuff that I just told an eight-year-old to read with no context, with no help or support, especially if their parents are, uh, aren't in it themselves and they're not helping teach. You know, and I, I feel like that's a lot of what I dealt with is just handing a kid a Bible and then mm-hmm. I printed up and would make a Bible reading plan that would go through the Gospels. Let's start with the Gospels. I'm going to get you kids to read those first. Um, but so I've always wrestled with just handing a Bible to anybody and saying, yeah, hey, read this. It'll give you all the answers for life and feeling some um, 
responsibility for like, no, if I'm going to give somebody a Bible, I feel like I need to personally stand in and walk side by side with them or because uh, then, you know, it just in my head, I think of constantly like the danger that could come from just handing somebody a Bible and them not knowing properly, having a proper hermeneutics to, to read through it and coming up with the crusades and well, God wills it, you know, the old Testament, God told him to go in and do this. So I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what would you say to, to someone like me in that situation? Well, you know, it's funny how much trouble you would get. Like if a teacher sent home a, a book with my kid and the first thing that they read was a story about a guy coming back to his house sacrificing his daughter and then shipping off the body parts. Mm-hmm. I would be pretty furious. That's true. <laughs> but at the same the good time- news is most eight-year-olds don't read the Bible. <laughs> and I can say that as being an eight-year-old who really liked scripture and studying, and I mm-hmm. still didn't do it And that's just often. one of the tame stories. <laughs> and that's just one of the tames. Yeah. Exactly. Well, <laughs> well, what's funny, too, is as having a lot of church curriculum for, for kids, you – I mean, absolutely every church curriculum out there for kids wants to teach about David, right? David's just this awesome character that kids can look up to until you get to the point where how he, uh, what he has to do to earn his first wife, Saul's daughter, mm-hmm. and going out and he's an overachiever and cutting off extra amount of foreskins to come back. But, you know, as you go through those stories, it's like you read up to that point and then you skip to the next chapter. All right, let's keep reading yeah, about David. Exactly. <laughs> Um, King George and the Ducky. We'll go watch that. <laughs> the great, yeah, right. The great thing is, Joe, you are uh, hitting on the. You're asking the right questions. I love this question, and it's why we've created an entire step around what we think is the answer to this question. So, Josh, do we have a step that could help us step answer this three, question? It's my one of my top five steps. One of your top five. That's good. That's good. So, top five. You are absolutely right. Um, I think it's a disservice to hand somebody a Bible and say, go read it, be blessed, enjoy. You now have everything that you need for following Jesus. Um, it's a disservice not to walk with them. And it's so, so important to remember that our call is to disciple people and to use the words of Jesus Teach them to obey everything that he's commanded. In other words, teach them to live and pursue Jesus, to pursue God. That's what Jesus did. Um, we can't. That can't happen by just turning a Bible over to somebody and saying, "Read it." Um, that is that is dangerous because then they can look at it. They read it with their own worldview in mind. They read it with their own personal history and baggage if they had father issues and they read about Jesus and God being a in a father relationship and they read about God being our father they will probably not see God the way that they should they need somebody to come alongside them and explain God is not the kind of father that you had father mm-hmm. the father God looks like this uh now the problem is that is really not the way that we're set up to run in church right now. We're set up to churn out disciples on a mass production basis. Converts. That's what they really end up being. We want people to make the decision and then they join the community. As long as they stay in the community, that's great. 
come to church once a week, hear the message once a week, and and yeah, you're good to go. Tithe. You forgot tithe. Tithe. Yeah, I got to do that. Um, but what we were really missing is this step three walking with someone. And the reason we skip it is because it's difficult and it takes time and it doesn't churn out the numbers like producing converts does in a mass evangelism setting. Well, we even might feel that it's irresponsible at times because it's going to take time to disciple someone one-on-one, but you might be able to give 10 Bibles out today. Yeah, so what's better? Like if Jesus comes back tomorrow, do I want the 10 people saved or do I want the one person saved? That's right. And so that that's often how we rationalize it uh, in our minds. Again, even a question like that, though, I think is, let's look at it. It, it. It's not dissimilar from all the questions we're asking about scripture itself. Like what is the right way of approaching something uh, like that? And you're going to get different answers depending on who you ask and what their perspective is on that. Does that mean that that you're wrong for saying, well, Jesus is coming back. I got to give the 10 Bibles out. No, I don't think you're wrong. I, I think that's the wrong language to use here. Um, are you taking responsibility to the fullest extent of actually discipling those people though? No. And so I think that's what you have to ask. And, and, and by the way, not everybody has to do that with everybody. Now, you should walk with someone. Everybody should be walking with someone. That doesn't mean that everybody that crosses your path, you have a responsibility to personally disciple. So you're not wrong, Joe, necessarily for giving out Bibles to to children. Like that Bible may be a source of life and a source for the Holy Spirit to come into that family and do something radical in their lives. Uh, you don't know that, right? That's, that's where the Holy Spirit comes in and that's where we are simply obedient vessels for him to do with what he will. The issue though is um, what effort are you making where you can? And so your question is right, but don't feel bad for saying, you know, I definitely don't want you to feel bad for giving out Bibles and not feeling like you, you could have done more. That is part of the point of the body of Christ having different members some people are going to be more specialized, like Josh is, to walk with people individually. It's just the way that he's built, um, and that's a great thing. Uh, he may not ever give out as many Bibles, though. Probably won't, which I often feel really bad about. I beat myself up for not giving out more Bibles. But he shouldn't, and <laughs> the people who are good at giving out Bibles shouldn't feel bad about that necessarily either. Um the reason why we have the five steps instead of just like a one step, which is, you know, otherwise, why wouldn't you just say, oh, yeah, walk with someone. That's a great step. Just make disciples is because there's it's a process and not everybody's going to fit into the same spot in this process. And uh, so we, we, we do have to allow for a variation, you know, and, and just try to wrap this up with a little bit of something here. Um, I, I do think that might be. One of the biggest takeaways from this this conversation, we in the West, Western Christianity, we feel like Christianity should be so black and white. These are the rules. Just tell me the Ten Commandments. Let me do them. I'll earn my keys and get into heaven myself. Like that. That's sort of the approach that we take. We, we would never say it that way, but we we want everything to be black and white. This is the way you do it. This is the way that you don't do it. And yet, from everything that we've talked about in this conversation, and and as I look back and reflect over my life and our journey together, Josh, all of the most significant moments come from letting go of that sense of control, that sense that 
this is the right way of doing it and this is the wrong way of doing it. We're uncomfortable with that because we think it does away with this idea of genuine truth, but it doesn't. We still fully believe in the idea that there is a truth out there that and, and that truth is God's truth that we should be seeking to uh, find and uphold. So that's a good aspect of it. But the problem is, is you don't know if or when you have gotten there. And so we have to begin to, I think, hold these things, these ideas, the ideas we have to begin to hold more loosely so that we can hold on to Christ himself more tightly. People, people might hear our conversation and think we have done a great disservice to the faith. We have weakened people's faith. We, we are weak in our faith. I would say our faith has never been stronger because we have chosen not to believe that the Bible is God himself, like you were talking about. It's, the Bible is not the thing that we serve. We serve Christ and him crucified first and foremost. The Bible is the witness to that. Our faith in Christ has grown, though, because we were able to let go of the Bible as being the thing that we served. We held these things loosely. In, in turn, we were able to hold on to Christ more tightly. Um, I think that's where we have to get, even with all of these discussions. And so, like, as we're asking these difficult questions about Scripture, as we're digging in and we're studying, and, and again, this is why I would encourage people to learn the discipline of studying Scripture. Um, you can start looking at commentaries. There are other great books out there that kind of can inform on this thing. Continue to learn. It's not an easy process. It's hard. It takes time. Sometimes it, it becomes harder to think about in your mind than it, before it gets easier. But that is the process of getting to know script or to know God, the God who is revealed through Scripture and ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where we want to end up ultimately with these questions. Awesome. Well, thanks for answering some questions with me today. Yeah, Joe, thanks for being on the podcast. I know we haven't answered them all. Um, and uh, perhaps we can have you back on and keep asking some questions. It would be fun to do that for sure yeah i'd love to how can you create a lifestyle of discipleship most christians think discipleship is a program or a few practices thrown in at the beginning or end of the day but we want to help you create a lifestyle where walking with jesus throughout the day is not only possible but natural and we have a tool that's going to help you do just that it's called the daily growth journal it's a guided journal that's going to help you become secure in your identity with God and authentically walk with Him in your daily life. Growing daily in your walk with Christ is possible if you cultivate a lifestyle of discipleship. And the Daily Growth Journal will help you do just that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. If you like what you've heard this week, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player you use. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to stay up to date with everything happening at Daily Growth Discipleship, go to dailygrowthdiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. 
You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Spotify.